How is everybody today? Welcome to this year's very first Science Sundays lecture. Um, I'm so happy you guys were all able to make it. It's a pleasure to see all of you here. Um, Science Sundays is a series of public lectures that take place during the, during the academic year. We bring in experts from Ohio State University, like our speaker today, as well as experts from around the world to come and talk about science, science and science that is important to each of our everyday lives oftentimes. Um, we specifically choose speakers, again like today's speaker, um, who have the ability to present science in ways that are interesting, entertaining, and also understandable by people regardless of their science background. That's the idea of Science Sundays. It's to bring science to the public. Um, my name is Ellen Peters. Um, I'm a distinguished professor of psychology um, here at Ohio State University. Um, I am also on the Science Sundays Committee because I'm also director of a center, a center that happens to be called the Decision Sciences Collaborative. Uh, we are an interdisciplinary community of faculty and graduate students focused on the science of, of, of how, we um, how we assess risks and benefits in our complex world and ultimately on how we make choices um, that affect our, our short-term well-being as well as our long-term well-being. Um, you can find out more about us if you're interested at decisionsciences.osu.edu. We also have a public discussion on the neuroscience of self-control, in case you're interested. Um, it's coming up on Thursday, November 1st at 6 p.m. in this very room. It was organized by Dr. Ian Krybeck of Psychology. Um, if you're interested, I hope you can join us. Um, I also have a few flyers with me if you kept, catch up with me after the lecture. The Decision Sciences Collaborative is funded by Social and, uh, Social and Behavioral Sciences, um, and we're part of the College of Arts and Sciences. Today, we're lucky enough to have our brand new divisional dean to introduce today's speaker. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Morton O'Kelly. Thank you, Ellen, and welcome, everybody. On behalf of Arts and Sciences, it's my pleasure to welcome you today to this terrific event. Uh, as Ellen mentioned, I'm the new Divisional Dean for Social and Behavioral Sciences. And uh, just a few months on the job here, it, this is the, my first time to come to these great events. And it's really fantastic to see the terrific program that's been put together. So thank you and welcome. Um, Science Sundays is a popular program. And it is a design to provide a wide range of current and emerging topics of, of public interest. And as you can see from the brochure, a terrific range of excellent speakers are planned through the new year. And so these are uh, very timely, and as you'll see today, very exciting ventures into topics of public concern, as, as you will see, of an intellectual nature that touches on sciences and, and comes in some cases from the social and behavioral sciences. Uh, after the talk today, just to get ahead of ourselves, please join us after the talk for a reception in the Ohio Staters room on, on the next floor. So that'll be great after we have uh, Mike's talk. So the talk today, to get down to the business, is the talk called Politics with the People and with is italicized. So Mike will explain his, his concerns and will engage us with that topic. Uh, our speaker is Professor Mike Neblo, who is a professor of political science. And interestingly, he also has appointments in philosophy and in public policy, and is director of one of our centers. The center is called IDEA. Uh, it's got a nice acronym. The acronym sounds for Institute for Democratic Engagement and Accountability, a 
terrifically timely topic, and as you'll see, something of great interest to us these days. Uh, just a brief word about Mike's background. He has a PhD from the University of Chicago. He spent time as a visiting professor at Yale. He joined us at OSU in 2003 and has f had funding from several major foundations, including Robert Wood Johnson and, Ke and Kettering Foundation. Uh, he's a prolific scholar. He's written two books and over 30 articles and has a large number of papers under, under writing and under construction. The pipeline is very full, as we say. His second book uh, is titled uh, Politics with the People, and there are little brochures on the desk outside. Please pick one of those up if you'd like. It has a discount coupon as well if you would care to pick one up. But I think this is a book about uh, representative democracy, again, something that we'll find out more about today. Uh, just published, and it's an impressive book. Um, he's also had an impressive record of, of funding uh, from external sources and is sought after as a speaker. Uh, he tells me that he will be soon a keynote speaker at Marquette University. And while I'm only a dean introducing him, the president will introduce him at Marquette. So he's really going for the big time there at Marquette. Um, just I thought I'd finish with one fun fact, and probably nobody in the room except Mike and I know this, but we are both Irish citizens. Um, I by birth, and him through heritage and through family, and where we're just comparing notes, we have a, a wide range of connections in Ireland to this day. And uh, I welcome. Mike to the podium, and we thank him for his speech. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Ellen and Morton, uh, and to all of you especially uh, for um, coming today. Uh, I'm really excited. This is the first time I've done, uh, you know, a general science uh, lecture, um, and uh, I'm I'm very very excited uh, to be speaking with you today, and even more so um, to hear your questions uh, when this is over, and if you're able to stay for the reception, uh, to talk to you um, there. So let me just start off. Does anybody have a, um, especially students in the audience, does anybody know what this is a picture of? Um, the Capitol building under construction, more particularly, it's, a, it's an historically um, sort of valuable photo. It's President Lincoln's first inauguration. Um, it was the first inauguration that people of color were ever invited to. Um, and the subtitle of, of my book is called Building a Directly Representative Democracy. So we thought that it was a nice metaphor with the, the building of the uh, Capitol Dome there. Also, politics with the people, um, you know, in, in his inaugural speech, President uh, Lincoln, you know, talked about the better angels of our nature and preserving the union, and eventually that dovetailed into his famous um, sort of uh, uh, honor to democracy uh, as government of, by, and for the people. Now, even in President Lincoln's time, the of and the by had to be understood in terms of representative democracy. Um, and we've talked about and tried to develop the idea of politics with the people in that we can't all quit our day jobs. Um, and uh, directly run the government. But at the same time, it's important to have robust input from, uh, from the public. So that's where uh, politics with the people comes from. Building a directly representative democracy, if it sounds slightly paradoxical, it's supposed to. We usually think of direct democracy as referenda, initiatives, recalls, things along those lines, where the people are directly empowered, or representative democracy, where um, elected officials really do the bulk of the work, and we only show up every two, four, six years if we bother to show up and check a, a, a box on, uh, on, on a ballot. 
Um, and the idea of directly representative democracy, as I'll develop it here, is to try to square that circle and really have it both ways. Okay. So I'm not going to launch right into the science. We will get to the science at Science Sundays, and I promise that. But I'm going to start um, with a little bit of family background. My grandfathers had six years of schooling between them, and that includes one of them going through the sixth grade. Uh, <laughs> My grandpa Steve, Stefano Napolillo, on the left here, immigrated from authoritarian Italy, never had a day of schooling in his life, and signed his name with an X, which is why I have a name that only vaguely sounds like his. Neblo is what the immigration officer at Ellis Island heard and wrote down after the X. Um, now, a couple of days ago, my daughter, Anna, on the right here, finished up her first month of seventh grade. It was just this past Friday. She now has more formal education than her four great-grandfathers combined. Not focused just on the men here, it turns out that um, the female descendants in my family actually had more education, so if I included them, this wouldn't work so well. <laughs> when she finishes high school, she will have knowledge and skills far beyond them, and college and anything after will only widen the gulf. Yet when Anna turns 18, she'll get one vote just like my grandfather Stefano got when he, a few years after coming to this country, very poor, illiterate, and unaccustomed to the rights and responsibilities of democratic citizenship. Now, I'm starting with this, this little uh, anecdote about family history because de democracy is rooted in the assumption, and it's hardly obvious when you really think about it, that such radical equality is sensible and just. I think we are trained to believe that it's sensible and just, and ultimately I think it's very good that we think it's sensible and just. But for the time being, I want to problematize that a little bit. When we say equality, what do we mean? Just counting heads? Well, that's exactly what thinkers from Plato down to our own day, there was an important book published just recently, no joke, called Against Democracy. Um, that's exactly what, what critics of democracy have always claimed is wrong with democracy. So, I'm not sure how well you can see this, but this is the funeral mon monument for Samuel J. Tilden. Does anybody happen to, this is, this is pretty inside baseball, anybody happen to know who Samuel Tilden is? No. Okay, he uh, was a reformist governor of New York and is distinguished as being the only presidential candidate to win an outright majority of the popular vote and lose the presidency. He lost to Rutherford B. Hayes. Other presidents, other candidates have won pluralities um, and gone on to lose, but he's the only one who, um, uh, who won an outright majority and, uh, and lost the presidency. And on his tomb, I don't know if you can see it, on the top there, he insisted on having inscribed, I still trust the people, which I think is really interesting and kind of um, sweet. Um, now, you might be tempted to think that's just a swipe at the Electoral College, which denied him the presidency, um, and that he really is just talking about counting heads. But actually, the most famous quote that Tilden is remembered for is saying that majority rule, just as majority rule, is as foolish as its critics complain, but it's never merely majority rule. The means by which the majority becomes the majority is the more important thing. So in addition to equality, I want to add a second criterion, 
for a good, healthy, functioning, representative democracy. And in my scholarly work, I refer to that as deliberative democracy or deliberation or deliberative accountability. So what do we mean here by deliberation? Ellen, what, uh, what brand of toothpaste do you use? Crest, Crest is awful. None of you should use Crest. You should all use Colgate, okay? Well, see, some people don't like Colgate, right? Well, if I said that in earnest, I'm not saying it in earnest. If I said that in earnest, Ellen might very rightly say, shut up, leave me alone, I like Crest, right? Um, I, don't, I don't want Colgate, and that's fine. But if you're gonna use your votes or your ability to give money to candidates, or talking to elected officials, your power as a citizen to either send my sons and daughters or some of the students in the audience off to war, or tell them who they can love and count as a member of their family, or take away their money via taxes and use it for other purposes. Under those conditions, I want to submit to you, it's not okay to say, shut up, leave me alone, that's what I want. Deliberative democracy, in a nutshell, is the idea that if you're gonna use your power, your political power, and our political decisions are gonna be enforced by people with guns, then it's not okay to say, shut up, leave me alone. That you owe, we owe each other explanations that go beyond, shut up, leave me alone, that's what I want. Unlike toothpaste, where you could reasonably tell me to shut up. Okay, so now we've got two criteria. We've got a radical equality, especially in, in the face of counting heads, and deliberation, or good reason giving and accountability for our exercise of power. Now, I wanna to submit to you <laughs> that given those two criteria, things aren't going so well. Um, we've got massive roles for money in American politics, and all politics, but especially in the US. Um, the partisanship and interest group um, uh, politics has descended into a pie-throwing contest. It's a blood sport, more like Michigan versus Ohio State. We all know how that should turn out, but um, the point is everybody thinks that that's true of politics as well, and that we don't have to give reasons. We just root for our team. Perhaps the best validated observation in political science is that the average American is stunningly ignorant. Not stupid, but ignorant in the sense of not having much knowledge about politics. Um, knowledge that you might think, and I'm gonna problematize that, but that you might think is essential to discharging your duties as a democratic citizen. And all of this, I think, adds up to the notion that we might be on a sinking ship of state, that things are pretty bad. Well, under those circumstances, and a lot of people believe this, it's natural to think about how we might reform things. And I wanna suggest that there are three main going alternatives out there. What I'll call the hands-on approach or plebiscitary democracy, sometimes called direct democracy, but I'm gonna mean something by different by direct in this talk, so I couldn't use that. But the idea is initiatives, referendums, recalls, giving people, putting power back into the hands of average people for political decision making. The exact opposite of that, I'm calling hands-off democracy, or technocracy, where we insulate the political um, process from politics and really just try to have experts work it out like it's an engineering problem. And a third approach I'll call doubling down or double down 
the double down approach. And in the literature, in the political science literature, this is often re referred to as the pluralist approach. And the idea here is that what went wrong is not parties and interest groups, it's that we weakened parties and interest groups through all kinds of reforms. And that what we should really do is go back to strong parties and empower interest groups, get rid of campaign finance regulations to the extent that there really are any anymore, um, and, uh, and strengthen parties and centralize them. Well, my co-authors and I think that there are some big problems with that. And the hands-on approach turns out in referenda and recall in, in California and other places, money is even more of a problem. It's, you can't get your voice out. You can't get things onto the ballot if it's a major initiative um, unless you have a lot of money. It can also lead to incoherent policy because it's done one issue at a time, whereas the legislature can think about a whole package of reform ideas. The hands-off approach is that people feel cut out. It's sometimes referred to as democratic deficits. Um, and also, there's the idea that there are no such things as values experts. You can be an expert about how this much of a tax cut is going to lead to, um, you know, X tax cut is going to lead to Y revenue change. But whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is not something that economists are experts at. It's you and I that are experts at that and need to have input into that process. And the problem with the double down approach is it turns politics into the toothpaste example and gets rid of deliberation. Everybody just cuts their own deal and let the chips fall where they may. And in addition, I'll present some evidence that this radically turns people off of politics and not randomly. It's not that it turns the same people off, it turns the people off who are already disempowered in our political system. So the idea is that these going reform proposals all have some serious problems associated with them. So our alternative we're calling directly representative democracy. It's direct in contrast to the double down approach is that you're represented as a citizen rather than as a member of a party or an interest group. It's representative versus hands off in that we can't all quit our day jobs and become experts on politics, that there's something to be said for people developing expertise and having it be their day job to really figure out what good policy is going to look like. And it's democratic versus the technocratic or hands off approach in that citizens will have a much more robust uh, sort of role in the political process than just showing up every two, four, six years, again, if you bother to show up um, and checking a ballot. So, so what might these directly representative, uh, directly representative and democratic reforms look like? Well, one thing to think about is town hall meetings. Um, there's the old New England town hall meeting, but there's also town hall meetings where elected officials meet with their constituents, oftentimes in venues like this, um, and, uh, and just have an open discussion. And people can come, they can present their views, you have average people standing up and uh, sort of um, representing themselves, and it's not all flooded with money and elites and all these other sorts of things, right? Well, this is a picture by Norman Rockwell um, from the Four, Great Four Freedoms series, and I love it um, and think there's just something to it, but um, Norman Rockwell wasn't known for his depictions of the gritty underbelly of civic, American civic life, um, and actually, a lot of people say, when I talk about town halls, they say, town halls, you gotta be kidding me, town halls, right? That um, the people who show up, just to give you a sense of what these pictures look like, so the, the Norman Rockwell one, of course, is fictional, it's not a real person. Although if you look closely, 
The guy in the central panel looks like he might be kind of the angry grandson of the genial citizen on the left. Um, I don't know if you can see, but he's holding a, a gun in his uh, hip holster, his, his thigh holster here, and is holding a sign saying, it's time to water the tree of liberty, which is a famous quote from Thomas Jefferson that finishes with the blood of tyrants and patriots. Um, now that's happening outside of President Obama's town hall meeting. Um, and it's not real hard to figure out um, whose blood he thought the Tree of Liberty might be um, in need uh, of getting uh, nourishment from. Um, and in addition, if you've sort of watched the news or go on YouTube, um, average town halls, even those not involving the president, just regular members of Congress, often, maybe even typically, um, just collapse into shouting matches and ugly um, scenes that uh, don't look much like deliberative accountability, at least I would uh, submit to you. And the reason it doesn't is that the people who typically show up are wildly unrepresentative of the average um, citizen, which is not to say if you are regular attendees um, that there's anything wrong with you, bless your heart, um, keep doing it. We need such citizen engagement. It's a great thing. Um, but I think that the people who so, show up to Science Sunday's talks aren't representative of the larger population either, and we need a broader, more equal form of engagement. The people who typically show up are either the member of Congress's strongest supporters or their most implacable angry foes. And under those circumstances, you're not going to get a lot of persuasion because you don't have to persuade the first group, and you can't persuade the second group. And so members of Congress don't even try. They try to basically run infomercials and in highly, highly managed uh, sorts of events if they can. And we had, we had interviews with 100 staffers where they told us over and over and over again. Okay. So now, finally, after a long lineup, here's the science or the beginnings of the science side of things. Part of what we asked ourselves is, can we do better? Um, and in particular, can we design features of town hall interactions in an experimental setting so that we have rigorous scientific evidence of how they differ from standard um, town hall settings and whether they make differences between um, constituents? So we recruited, uh, th this is kind of summarizing a, a lot of research. I can get into the details if people are interested, but we recruited Roughly 2,000 randomly invited constituents. Randomly invited here is crucial because then you're not just getting the people who always show up who either love their member or who are angry. Um, we did two kinds of sessions, some with the members of the House of Representatives, a larger one with a senator, Carl Levin from Michigan. We conducted these town halls online. We built a technology platform that allowed us to do it online. And the online uh, uh, element of it is related to who shows up, right? Because if you're a single mom, you oftentimes can't afford to hire a babysitter, drive 40 minutes each way, and the time at the town hall. Um, all you got to do here is maybe put a video on or ask your neighbor to let your kids come over for a play date. And it turns out that we get a very, very different uh, mix of people, which I'll talk about. Town halls lasted about an hour. A third crucial element here is that they were moderated by the research team. You know, me, really, um, in uh, one case, or it, in, in the, the, the front end case. Um, and that's crucial from the point of view of trust of the constituents, that it wasn't an infomercial, that this wasn't a rigged event. And it turns out over and over and over, constituents said that they loved that. And they actually gave the members of Congress more credit for it 
standing in there and taking tough questions than they did getting a polished sort of show, which everybody just dismissed as a farce. These focused on a single issue, so you couldn't get away with sound bites. This was an hour on one issue. We did about 20 sessions on immigration reform and one on terrorism policy, detainees, torture, rendition, um, Guantanamo Bay, things along those lines. I'll submit to you that terrorism policy and immigration are not softball issues. Um, we were dealing with real pressing matters of public policy and didn't cherry pick easy ones. Okay, from the scientific standpoint, we had, uh, this was an experiment, a field experiment, but an experiment nonetheless. We had a treatment condition where the people got to deliberate with, and they were randomly assigned into this, um, where they got to deliberate with their member of Congress and got background information on the issue that had been vetted mostly came from Congressional Budget Research, uh, excuse me, Congressional Research Service or Congressional Budget Office reports, and that all of the offices involved signed off on as being a good representation of the factual issue base um, behind the policy before them. Um, we had a control group that just took surveys, and then we had what we call a partial control group who got the information but didn't, didn't get to deliberate. And the idea here is to respond to critics who say, this isn't really about participating, it's just about information. Give people good quality information, information they'll make good decisions. We showed that that's not true. So we did five surveys. Um, there was a baseline survey, everybody got it. Um, about a week or two after they got their information materials if you were in those conditions and got a survey after that. The session itself, if you were in the treatment, survey after that. Then everybody got one a week after. And then everybody got one four months later after the November midterm elections. And that's crucial because in political science, especially in political psychology, what are called treatment effects are the scientific effects associated with the treatment that you're giving, the, the stimulus, situation that you're putting people in, um, typically if you can get them to last four hours, you're doing well. Um, four months is enormous. Okay, I only have one equation in the whole uh, talk, but it's Science Sunday, so I was told that I could include um, an equation. So you might be wondering, oh, well, it's really just the people who show up. Um, this is self-selection. The people who are going to participate in this are open-minded people um, who are going to be level-headed and want to talk to their members of Congress. Well, we built an, uh, a, a tailored statistical model that we published in a good quality political methodology journal. Um, I won't go over this, but the basic idea is to subtract out the people who are treated and the people who won't, but conditioned on their propensity to do what they're told to cooperate and comply with the treatment. And we built in lots of stages, like finishing your survey, reading your background materials, doing other sorts of things to test for people's propensity um, to comply, and we cor correct for that. So we claim, if you buy our statistical model, all of the things that I'm gonna be presenting are just simple per percentage changes, but we claim that those are actually causal changes, that those aren't just driven by the people who happen to show up. Okay, these are um, the members of Congress who participated in the study. I won't dwell on it. Uh, again, this is a field experiment. It turns out you can't compel members of Congress to be randomized into your field experiment. Um, so we, we had to check on that, um, but uh, we, we couldn't. Um, and so we don't uh, claim that this is a random sample of uh, members of Congress, but um, it actually looks quite a bit like the Congress, if, if you buy the numbers that we're working with here. We were spread all over the country. Um, we had changes in tenure. We had leadership 
Um, we had women, we had an African-American member, uh, we had people that voted against their party on the issues, um, and we checked uh, every way with, till, till Science Sunday um, to see whether there was something special about these people. You might say, well, it's at least that they're going to be good at it. Well, actually, we had two different cases where the chief of staff said, no, I'm doing this because my boss is awful at this technology stuff, and they need to learn how to do it. Um, so, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of a taste for what one of the sessions would look like. The original, this is an old one. This is one of the first rounds that we did back in 2006. So the technology doesn't look all that spiffy compared to what we can do now, but it'll give you a flavor. This was a town hall on immigration with um, Congressman George Radonovich, a moderate Republican uh, from California. Oh, I was supposed to talk that through while it, uh, there we go. Okay. There we go. So we had a welcome screen. The constituents were mostly mediated. Via well, I'd like screen. to thank everybody for coming you to this hear the uh, discussion this with the Honorable George Rodanovich. Um, and uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce the congress congressman who's going to make a few opening remarks. Well, good morning and thank you. Uh, my name is George Rodanovich. I represent the 19th district uh, in Congress here uh, from California. So Terry asks, what bill are you supporting and why? Well, Terry, right now, um, <clears throat> the, the, the House voted on a, a version in December that I voted no against. It was strictly on border enforcement and didn't deal, I think, with some of the more important issues that, that need to be dealt with as well. She's from Terry. She asks, why do we spend so much on illegal immigrants when we have poverty-stricken residents who would love to work but cannot find employment? Well, uh, because the United States is a kind and gentle nation. I mean, we are not going to allow anybody, whether they're a citizen or not, to starve on the street. It's just not what we are as Americans. Now, maybe that, I, I don't know your politics and I don't need to know it, but I'll just point out that was a Republican member of Congress talking about immigration, arguing back against a constituent, um, arguing back against a constituent who was pressing him uh, on, on, treating, uh, on, on his treatment of undocumented uh, immigrants. And we saw over and over and over attempts to persuade. This was not just sound bites. This wasn't just trying to wiggle out of problems. Um, it was very, very substantive. Okay, um, but now I have to prove that that's true. Um, so I'll lay out what we take to be our criteria for success in these sessions. First one is inclusive uh, participation. We don't want to just have only the usual suspects. Surely the usual suspects should participate as well, but we want to have more people. Um, informed engagement, it's got to be proceeding on the basis of good quality factual information. Reasoned persuasion, and there's two parts of that, the reasoned and the persuasion part, and I'll talk about both. It's got to be worthwhile for constituents or they're not going to keep showing up. And it's got to be worthwhile for elected officials or they're not going to keep showing up. So in order for this to affect public policy, it's got to meet all of these conditions. In addition, it's got to work at scale if it's really going to move the super tanker um, a little bit. So let's go through these criteria. First one, inclusive participation. First of all, people told us this, this was a fool's game, that we were getting into something that was just going to collapse, that nobody was going to want to do this. Turns out we had huge yes rates on participation. Many, many, many people 
um, about 87% said that they wanted to participate. And this is perhaps my favorite thing in the whole book. Now, the people who showed up in our sessions, far from being the usual suspects, were more representative of eligible voters than voters, right? So the people who show up to vote aren't representative of everybody who can vote. Our participants were more representative of people who can vote than the people who actually vote. And we asked them why, and they told us that they thought standard politics was a mugs game, that it was irrational, that it was just a blood sport, and they wanted nothing to do with it. But when their member called them up and said, no, really, I want to hear what you have to say. How does Tuesday at 8 work? I said, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds great. I'll show up. Informed engagement. Um, there was a causal effect of about a 20% increase in uh, issue knowledge, and four months later, general political knowledge. Again, controlling for who was showing up. Four months later, the participants were more likely to know who controlled each chamber of Congress and a few other basic political facts. Again, I want to emphasize, in these kinds of experiments, those are very big effects lasting a very long time. Um, and it's because people, all of a sudden, started engaging uh, in politics more outside of the context of the experiment. The experiment lit them. Uh, lit a, a small fire under them and got them more uh, involved. This wasn't all just the background materials. The information-only condition saw less than a half of that gain. And it wasn't just the people, the rich getting richer. Both uh, Stefano, my grandfather, uh, who was illiterate, well, couldn't actually be illiterate and be in the study, but um, who, who was less educated and less sophisticated, um, and my daughter Anna, who presumably will be some, uh, there, there was a plenary effect that everybody's boat got lifted. Okay, reason persuasion here. I'm going to focus on the persuasion part. Again, causal effects. Um, the uh, constituents who participated were 14% more likely to agree with their member of Congress on the issue under consideration. Um, in particular, various bills that were being pr um, promoted, uh, presented to the Congress. And there was a 9% move in the Senate, the larger Senate um, session. So there definitely was persuasion, but it's an open question as to whether it was reason persuasion. So um, this is the toughest thing, and in, in, uh, it's mostly in the book, but I'll just go over uh, quickly the toughest thing to prove is the reasoned part, since it's controversial what reason means. But I'll just give you a taste for uh, a few things. First of all, we just published the transcripts, and you can read it, and it's all attempts at persuasion on the merits. So facially, it looks like persuasion. It wasn't we tested for just partisan sorting. Was this just people getting their signals straight and listening if they were Democrats, listening to their Democratic members and moving or Republicans, vice versa? No. Uh, it was across-the-board persuasion. Um, screened questions. Our protocol required that if a question was abusive, vulgar, or something else, we had to um, filter it out. 2,000, over 2,000 questions and comments submitted. Anybody want to guess how many we had to filter out? These were anonymous online questions and comments. Z zero. Zero. Not one. Now, if you read the comment sections on newspapers or blogs <laughs> or participate in any other sort of online activity, for that matter, I suspect, um, you will be very surprised, as we were, we were genuinely surprised by this, but this is the power of random selection. The vast majority of the country do, aren't angry in, in getting their pitchforks to, to go run after their member of Congress. Um, and if you get a random sample of them, you get a handful of people who are maybe a little bit um, more intense, but the norms of the environment taps that down as well. 
We also used uh, an academic scale called the Discourse Quality Index. Can't go into the details on that, but if you think, oh, the members of Congress are gonna dumb it down, their discourse quality scores were higher in these events than their floor speeches in Congress, right? Not dumbing it down, actually ramping it up. Um, and it turns out, we asked about rationales for the various um, uh, policies, and we measured the gains in issue knowledge, and it was people who gained knowledge that were more likely to change their position and change it in a way that's congruent with the rationales that they articulated as being important in what they're doing. So I hope that that just gives you at least a, a taste of the evidence that we try to uh, present that this is reasoned persuasion, not just persuasion. It's not just manipulation. Okay, worthwhile for constituents. Um, constituents had a 25% bump in their sense of political efficacy, their notion that they weren't just cavemen, they could, uh, cavemen and women, they could understand politics, engage and, and want to, and that people outside in politics were going to listen to them, and that they could make a difference in the political process. A whopping 95% said that it was very valuable for democracy. 97% said that they'd like to do another. Again, if you do public opinion research, you can't get agreement at that level that like sexually transmitted diseases are bad. Um, uh, people uh, you know, rate terrible things higher than this. Um, we went through the, um, the qualitative comments and they were six to one positive. Um, so for every negative comment about the member of Congress or the process, there were six positive ones. Okay, worthwhile for the members of Congress. They also, we surveyed them afterwards, which was really pretty fun, and those were extremely positive comments as well, though you might reasonably say that no member of Congress is going to say, oh yeah, I just spent an hour with my constituents and it was a total waste of time. Um, but nonetheless, I will mention uh, that they were extremely positive comments. Um, in addition, the people who participated were more likely, we, we developed this battery of items um, from a, a very famous um, and eminent political scientist um, named Richard Fenno, we call them the Fenno items, and the, the, he, the things he claims members of Congress want constituents to think about them, that they understand people like me, that they're knowledgeable, hardworking, trustworthy, all of those things. And on average, there was a 14% bump. Um, on all of these attributions, you were 12% more likely to trust your member, 12% more likely to approve of him or her on the issue under discussion, 8% more likely to, to approve of him or her generally, and then here's the coup de grace, four months later, 10% more likely to vote for them. Again, um, I, I interviewed some members of Congress afterwards who didn't participate in this, and when you tell them that, they lean forward and their eyes get open uh, wide. And it turns out even the ones who are very, very safe, they want to win going away. A 10% bump is huge. Um, they're very, very interested in this. Okay, scale, scaling up and out. Um, first of all, we replicated this um, in good scientific fashion to make sure it wasn't something strange about immigration, tried a different issue, um, and it's, it uh, was the same across the different issues. Um, we also tried to make it much larger seven times larger, a little bit more, and pretty much the same pattern of, of, uh, of outcomes across the board. Now, you might think, oh, but still, this is just retail politics. It can't affect the system. We estimate that if every member of Congress spent two hours a week, do, did two sessions um, every week, in the term of 
uh, and in the term of a senator in six years, they could reach a quarter of the American electorate. And with the size of the effects that I've been describing here, reaching that many people can really move the ship. Also, I'll mention that there were what, what economists called multiplier effects, um, that for every person who participated, they went out and talked to another one and a half people, basically, and tried to convince them about the issue at hand or about the member that they interacted with, overwhelming in this case, um, positively. So there were probably secondary and tertiary effects that we're not even controlling for here. Okay, so what's next? Well, the first thing is, I'll point out is that for the most part, I've been giving you evidence about the effects that the members had on their constituents. Um, we do have some evidence in the book about how the constituents affected the members, how the members used this deliberative information, this high quality feedback from their constituents. But that's a fairly thin part of what um, uh, of the first round of the study, and of course, in, at least according to deliberative democratic theory that I subscribe to, you, this is gonna, it's supposed to be a two-way street. Um, we don't want it just to be a place um, to influence constituents. We also wanna do paired consultation with Republicans and Democrats. We've got our first pair signed up to do that so that it's not just an attempt for elites to lead opinion and influence constituents and also to involve challengers so that it's not just an incumbency advantage uh, sort of process. But that's what we're looking at. Okay, so now you might be asking, is this really the time though? We've gotten this question a lot. Any of the students in the audience, I imagine a lot of people recognize who this is. Anybody recognize who it is and where, the, where he is? Yes, Birmingham jail. It's Martin Luther King in the Birmingham jail. Yes, Martin Luther King Jr. and he's sitting in jail, that's his mugshot. And then a picture of him, I don't know how he was allowed to be photographed in the jail, but this is how Dr. King, yeah, it's a good question. This is how Dr. King began that famous letter. While confined, confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities, quote, unwise and untimely. Now, Dr. King was replying to moderate white ministers who rebuked him for abandoning deliberation in favor of disruption. Dr. King explained that extraordinary injustices justified extraordinary politics. Many people today, from the Tea Party to Indivisible, fervently believe that we live in similarly extraordinary times and call again for extraordinary politics. People of very different political stripes, therefore, might worry that focusing on civil and substantive discourse is similarly unwise and untimely. We've gotten this criticism quite a bit, really. Now is not the moment to emphasize dialogue and deliberation, they would say. At best, there's, uh, we're being naive, rearranging deck, chip, uh, deck uh, chairs on a sinking ship. And at worst, we are abetting a fundamentally broken system. But Dr. King argued that, that just protest must aim to restore deliberative politics on terms that are more just and inclusive. Quote, you may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't nego negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Too long have we been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. Close quote. The letter itself is a form of deliberation, I would argue, which combined with disruption, his direct action, worked to deepen democracy 
Like Samuel Tilden, Dr. King ultimately trusted the people when they were called to their best, as do I. You must judge for yourselves which of today's rallying cries warrant extraordinary politics. On my account, reforming our political discourse remains vital, whatever you decide. So to those who worry that such reforms are untimely, then it is worth recalling Dr. King's admonition that in politics, wait has almost always meant never. Our republic can scarcely afford further delay. So that's it. Um, in closing, I want to thank um, uh, Amanda, Ellen, John, and Marty uh, for inviting me and organize this, especially to all of you for your time and attention uh, and in advance for your questions. I think I've left a little extra time. I'm a little under, so we should have plenty of time for discussion. Thank you. I wonder if we could have a microphone um, for the tech guys in back. Can we have a microphone for people who have questions? If not, I can repeat questions if, if they don't come yeah, we in may, heavily. We may have to do it that yeah. way. Yeah. Okay. So I open it up to the floor. Yes? Uh, my understanding is that, that your research is continuing, but uh, as you've moved and uh, had representatives participate, have any of them continued to use the same process afterward? Or has this been more of a one and done sort of process where you see great results, but they don't have the will or the funding to continue to do it themselves after you have uh, proven the research to from great patients? Uh, really important question because it's going to scale up. Can people hear me? I'll, I'll just carry this. Um, so the question, for those of you who might not have heard it, is um, did the, ha, have the, the elected officials we worked with continued to work with this, or was it a one and done? Uh, and that's a crucial question, because we want this not, to, we, we want to do good quality research. This is Science Sundays. I'm, I'm proud of the scientific quality of the work that I'm doing. But the real passion behind it is to try to make um, representative government better um, by standards that I think a lot of people can agree um, would look like better, what, what better would mean there. Um, so the answer is yes, but not nearly as much as we would hope. Um, and that was the subject of some follow-up research to say, why? You said you loved this. <laughs> um, we showed you that this was really working well. Um, and that's heavily informing our second, our, our new round of research. Their answers, I should say, are heavily informing our new round of research. And the rationale that we got is that we're drowning. That in, in just as a bit of background, since 1994, real dollar resources to a congressional office have fallen by about a third. Um, turnover in offices is spectacularly high. And chiefs of staff, so this is a senator, a chief of staff in the Senate. Right? So these are people at the top of their profession, make $87,000 a year, which is not a bad living. But if you've spent 25 years and at the top of your prof profession and trying to raise a family in Washington, DC, that's not a lot of money. Um, these people are, they work 60 hours a week. So our new motto is, time neutral or time subsidizing. That everything we present to them, we say, you don't have to do anything. It's off the shelf. We're gonna show up and make it easy for you. And so I didn't show the slide, but we've got another group of 24 members who are interested on those conditions. And we're, um, we've got funding requests in from some large granting agencies. The brass ring would be to set up a small office in Washington, DC, maybe two or three people where they would just, their job would be to run to the hill and make this time neutral or time subsidizing to the offices. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Okay. Any other questions? Oh, great. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, raise your hand. Uh, here. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Absolutely, yeah. And it turns out, so now we don't necessarily have to have randomized samples in the scientific sense. For this study, for the proof of, proof of concept, we used full-blown probability sampling for people who are interested in the details. I can talk about that. But we used very high, the same high-quality samples that um, people would use um, for public opinion polls. Right? We don't think that you have to go to that level of quality because it's very expensive. And the real key is just making sure you're not only getting the usual suspects, that you're reaching out broadly into your constituency. And um, in the new round that we're working with, um, we're still working with a, uh, a polling company, but it's, a, it's, a, it's not MTurk, um, but it's a very uh, low cost way of doing this, such that we think we could sustain it even if it were to move to scale. But the, the basic answer is yes, you don't want to revert. We, th we have reason to think um, that a lot of the nice things that we saw were partly or, or importantly a result of um, get, getting high quality random samples or, or broadly random samples. Another thing that I would mention on the science side is when I said, when I showed you those five things that we varied, you might be saying, that's not how you do it in science, you vary one thing at a time, um, uh, not five. And some of the, partly what we did is we put all of what we thought were the crucial constituents in place. And in some of our experiments, we're now working back from that to see what the real active ingredients are what the minimal set of those conditions would look like in order to be able to achieve um, the, the quality outcomes that we see. Yes, over here. Sure. Okay. Uh, yes, sir? Oh, okay. I'll repeat it. So um, the, the question was, there's a lot of evidence. I don't know if it's 80%. There's, there's different estimates out there. But it, let, let's take it as stipulated that members of Congress spent, spend an enormous amount of their time raising money. Um, that it's a very large fraction of what they do might even overshadow um, their legislative and representational activities more generally. And so the question is, can what we're doing compete? Right? Okay. Uh, great question. Um, and I think that there's actually two questions in, embedded in that, or I'll, I'll try to draw out on two of them. So 10% bumps in voting rates four months later are gigantic effects relative to being able to buy one more ad. Um, and I really have, honestly, had members of Congress lean forward and have their eyes pop out when we suggest this. Now, I'd further add that they spend more than two hours a week 
doing standard sort of constituent outreach practices. The ones, a lot of them have stopped doing in-person town halls, but the ones that still do in-person town halls, those are much more time consuming. You have to get there and back, you have to arrange the venue, all you need is a phone um, to do ours. And so this is, and this links back to, to one of the first questions um, about being time neutral or time subsidizing. Um, and so yes, we do have reason to think um, that this can stand up to um, narrowly to the, their um, fundraising demands. I think there's a bigger question that's kind of uh, there in yours, which is, you know, big, powerful, moneyed interests don't like it when they lose relative power. Um, and how are they going to adapt? If this were to, right now, you know, we're small stuff. Um, you know, we're not really moving the super tanker. Um, but if this were really to scale up, would powerful interests attempt to sabotage it? Um, and I think the answer is almost certainly yes. <laughs> um, and so we're working on ways of dealing with that. One is a certification program um, where the, the institute, the, the idea, the Institute for Democratic Engagement and Accountability would certify certain sort of events as meeting directly representative criteria rather than just you go off and you do your own version of this, but you rig the background materials, you pack the people with your supporters, you don't have a third party um, uh, moderator. We think we've got pretty good evidence to suggest that that actually backfires. The, the constituents hate it when they think they're being sold a bill of goods and, be in, uh, and are wasting their time on an infomercial. But um, staffers are very, very risk averse about this sort of stuff, and so there, almost certainly there would be a, there would be morphs um, of these uh, sorts of events that kind of looked like them but weren't really doing the normative work. Um, and we're working very hard on trying to think through ways um, to counter adapt. Great question. Um, our, our whole approach, in addition to time subsidizing or time neutral, is that you can do well by doing right. That you, by this method, you're actually working on substantive problems and getting reelected at the same time. Right? So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the term limits part aside, I think that's a very important question, but a very complicated one, um, especially in light of the staff turnover that I was talking about. C congressional turnover is a problem too. These, they actually learn something um, uh, as they spend time in, in, in their uh, work. And so I'm, I'm personally ambivalent about um, t term limits, but I am focused on what I think you see as the root question, which is a separation between legislative and representational activities and fundraising and sort of raw reelection motivations. We're trying to, we're not saying eat your spinach, 
we're saying you can have your cake and eat it too. Um, Ma'am, I think you were. Yeah. So I think my question is related to the previous one. Sure. Which is, um, I noticed one, one of the names on your list was Aguano, mm -hmm. who famously just uh, lost. No, that ten that ten percent was net for the candidate. There, yes, for the I'm, I'm sorry. So there was about a similar, a little bit less, eight percent increase in your likelihood of voting, but it was a net ten percent increase in voting for that member of Congress. Okay, so you're, I guess you're Good. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, ma that makes great good sense. Um, it, it let me reframe your question just a little bit. Um, because, you know, look, he did two sessions with us. Most of them did two sessions with us. Um, and, you know, the, the numbers were small enough that many years later, that's not, you know, going to fend off a primary challenge. But I do think that there is, um, uh, what, what you're saying is a problem for what we're talking about in that primaries tend to be the people who showed up at normal town halls. Um, and they're the most intense, most partisan, and most ideologically polarized um, people, which isn't saying a bad, it's not bad at all, um, but they're different and that they're not the center of the constituency. And to the extent that people are worrying about being primaried from the right or the left, depending on their party, um, that poses a problem because our results are actually across the board, um, but especially powerful for centrist constituents, constituents who don't already have a dog in the fight. Um, and that's something that we're working on um, and want to do uh, these, so we talked about paired Republican Democrat, but there could also be challengers. Um, and um, well, we can talk more about that, but I want to get in one or two more questions if we have time. Um, is there any? Yeah. Uh, right. So the question was, are we considered doing this um, uh, for primaries? Yes. Um, right now, we're focused on really nailing the, the, the sort of active ingredients that I was talking about and still doing some of the basic science. Um, and in order to do that, um, as you might expect, the members of Congress don't love the idea of having to do it with their challengers. Um, doesn't mean that we're not going to be able to get them to do that. We think we have reason to think that we can. Um, uh, and ultimately, yes. Um, uh, but but that's, that's not in, we haven't done it so far, and that's not in the next round of research. That's the second round of research forward. We, we've, yeah, they're already published. Yeah. Uh, maybe over there. I don't think I've gotten anybody from the wings. I apologize if people from, my eyesight's not great, so. Um, so using this study, so 
the influence of the politicians that are, are in right now is good, and telling them what their, their actual main body constituents wants is really good, but you're not, do, do you have a data on how many of these constituents that participated in this actually went on to vote in the elections for these politicians? Because if they didn't vote, then you're still going to the extrema of both parties who are going to vote in a more extreme candidate who isn't all the most Sure. Uh, uh, so what we use for just voting is what's called verified vote. It turns out in most states, um, it's, a it's a matter of public record whether you voted. So we actually have hard factual evidence on whether they voted. And they were notably, considerably more likely to vote, about 8 or 9% more likely to vote. The 10% net more likely to vote for the, the member of Congress who did that with them is self-reported because that's not a matter of public record. <laughs> um, uh, but um, so there's a little bit of worry perhaps, but we, we don't think that, that misreporting is likely to be a huge problem in that context. And I will say it tracks very well. There wasn't a lot of misreporting on whether they voted or not. Um, yes. Is that the last one? Go ahead. So I hope I've said it before and let me add again. I don't think the people who are already showing up are bad citizens. I think they're great citizens um, and I encourage that. The goal is to bring more people into that process and people who haven't participated before and especially so because the people who usually show up um, look different um, and are different in, in many respects, demographic respects. Um, than the people who are less involved in the political process, magnifying um, the voices of those who don't show. So this is a level up, not a push down, um, or any criticism of people who are already participating. That's, I, I really want to say that emphatically. So, but to ask your direct question, answer your direct, direct question about the state and local level, I was really lucky and uh, proud to be invited by the Glenn School um, in their, I'm forgetting the proper name for it, um, but basically it was a, summer school for state and local officials. Um, uh, it was a whole week of intensive 40 hours of class time, and I got five of that, um, and worked with state and local officials, presented on this, and they actually, I learned as much as they did, um, they were great about helping me understand what is likely to port out of what I'm doing into a state and local context and what would have to be adapted, but I can say um, just qualitatively, they were very enthusiastic. Um, they, they do think that it could, um, uh, it could adapt to the state and local level. Okay, I think that I have, uh, that's time. Um.